Good morning, I'm Peggy. I'm reading from the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, verses three through six. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Peggy. Good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson. And um, again, if you're new, we are very glad you're here. And uh, if you're new or you've never heard me preach before, I just want to give you all a, uh, a quick heads up that I have a speech impediment that'll kind of come in and out as we go. So just want to make sure that you know what that is. Um, and we're going to get after it here pretty, pretty quickly this morning. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians. We're in week two of Ephesians. So um, yeah, turn there to Ephesians chapter one. And if you have, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, please hold your hand up high and keep it up and somebody will get you one. Okay. We want to make sure everyone has a Bible they can read and understand and follow along with. And if you don't own a Bible, you do now. Okay, this is our gift to you. Y en español, si quieres la Biblia y no tienes, por favor, levanta su mano y diga español. Y si no tienes una Biblia, uh, eso es un regalo a usted. Y esta mañana estamos en el libro de Efesios, capítulo 1. And um, I also want to say we have now, so if you didn't raise your hand but you still want one, we can still go in, in your hands after you hear this information. Um, we now have large print Bibles. So yeah, we can, show, we can be excited for that, okay? Because um, I know many of us, especially our kind of older demographic, um, if you will, like is like, why even hand these out? I can't even see it. Well, now we can. There, it's big and easy to see. So um, again, if you, if you need a Bible, uh, hold your hand up and, and we'll get one in your, in your hands. All right, so while we're getting there, let me just kind of give us some handles for where we're headed this morning, okay? We're heading into some pretty significant, deep uh, things in God's word this morning. As some of you may have seen even there as we read through the scripture, like, wow, we're gonna get after it this morning, and we are. Um, so this is where we're uh, headed this morning, okay? The big idea is that we see that God's people are fully blessed in Christ, chosen in love for adoption, okay, as a picture of God's glorious grace, okay, and so as you can see there, we have it kind of broken down how we're going to be walking through that, so that's where we're headed this morning. Would you join me in praying and asking God to lead us through this significant time together in his word? Uh, Lord, we do thank you for your word, uh, especially as we come before uh, texts like this that there's been a lot um, written on, a lot of conversation about, and even perhaps some even here this morning have even thought about or wondered or maybe even skipped 
past scriptures like this, we know that this is your word, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And so we trust and we pray that uh, through your spirit, you would let uh, the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. So we trust that you will continue to shape us and to lead us to worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So um, have you ever seen a house or been in a house that had lots of rooms and sometimes even rooms that you kind of wonder like, what's that room even there for? Like, why did they even create that? You know, there might even be like a little rope across it that's kind of like, don't go in this room, you know? Um, I grew up in a house and my house now is full. So every room is used a lot. And it's, you know, it's in, in our home. In fact, even last night, our four kids slept out in the living room. They called it um, family sleepover. They're like, can we have family sleepover? And we're like, let's be clear. I want no part of that. We're sleeping in our own bed, but you kids can, yes, have family sleepover out there. But the way our house feels is like it's one big room. Everyone's in it, just kind of r- runs around. But I remember in college being in a Bible school at a kind of an older couple's house in the foothills. And I remember that was perhaps even one of the first times I saw these homes that had rooms where you're like, what goes on in that room? You know, like white, you know, carpet and furniture that fell. And, 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 it, and it felt like, I don't really know what's, what that's even all about. And in some cases, you're like in, intrigued by it and enthralled. Like, man, I just want to hang out in this room. That's it. And I don't even care about the whole house. And, and then some, you're just like, I don't even care about that. Don't even think about it. And that's, I think, kind of a helpful, maybe even silly, but a picture of the way some of us approach theology. Okay, the way we understand God, right? Theology, right? Belief about God that some of us approach it this way, where, where we, we get focused on certain rooms, okay, on certain theologies, on certain ideas, like we're talking about even this morning, some of these ideas, right, or words that we saw, right, chosen, predestination, perhaps you've even learned more about these things, the doctrines of grace it's re- re- referred to, or, 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 or Calvinism, or Reformed theology, and some people approach these kind of things, or these kind of passages like, that's it. That's all I care. Let's eat in there. Let's sleep in there. That's everything. Like, let's just hunker down and forget everything else in this house. Others are like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm just going to skip right past it and just kind of hang out everywhere else, but not that one. That place seems kind of uncomfortable. I'm just going to pretend like it isn't even there. Okay, but what we do this morning as we approach God's word again and we trust this is his word that he's given to us to reveal himself to us and to lead us to right worship of him is we need to understand how this all connects. So as we move into this, let me just, so we're in verses three through six this morning, okay, but I wanna point out that the whole house, even in this section, is verses three through 14, okay? There's a whole section here that the author of this uh, of, of Ephesians, the author Paul wrote this, specifically this whole section, verses 3 through 14, is almost like one cohesive thought that's meant to lead us to doxology, to worship, okay, which we're going to actually sing that at the end of our time here today, and that's even a picture for us to understand that theology, right theology, should always lead us to joyful, right doxology, 
worship. Okay, and so the point is not let's hunker down and focus here on these couple of theologies and forget the big picture, but also, okay, for everyone else in here, the point is not let's ignore this stuff because if we do that, okay, hear me, that prevents us from fuller, richer worship of who God is and what it means to be his people. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning is we are gonna focus in on some of these intricate, important doctrines and theologies that we see through God's word but we're not just gonna stay there and pretend like that's all there is. We're also gonna have a trust that God is gonna lead us from that point to responding in worship, to who he is. So again, as we prayed earlier, we trust that God will reveal himself more clearly to us to lead us to more full, more rich, more true worship of him as his people. So with that, let's begin here, right? In, in, uh, turn with me to verse three, okay? Ephesians chapter one, verse three, where we see that God's people are fully blessed in Christ. Okay, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right, um, I, I wanna use this as a, for a second here to point out this little booklet that we have. It's actually a big booklet, and it's a three-part. It's kind of the first part of a three-part of, uh, I don't know what you call that, volume, a whole set, if you will, to help us walk through Ephesians. And this is part one, so there will be two more coming as we go. Um, specifically with things like this passage even, there's really helpful stuff. Even the very first couple words, which we can't spend a whole bunch of time there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, there's a really helpful section that explains what does it mean to bless God? Like I've wondered, you know, what does that mean? And just, just kind of so you understand, even since I did open that up, is it's to, it's to give right honor and, and right understanding and, and, and to, to, to see correctly. Okay, so that, but again, let me just point this out because there will be things that we can't fully dive into in our time together. And I, I wanna, this is a really helpful tool for all of us. So I'd encourage you, we have them out there, encourage you to get one. Um, but as we press in here, a couple things, okay? That God's people are blessed fully in Christ. Well, we look at some of these things, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Those are things that we would tend to just read and kind of move on past and, and, and think a couple things. When we read spiritual blessing, we probably think intangible, more kind of ethereal things out there, right? Joy, peace, maybe kind of feeling, stuff that you can't really feel and, and hold and gra grab onto, and perhaps even things that aren't real might be our tendency to read something and be like, blessed in every spiritual way, and it feels like, okay, thanks, but how does that really apply to my real everyday life? Well, what, what this means here, that, that, that God's people are blessed in Christ through the Spirit, in every way in all of life. Okay, that's what, that, that's what that phrase right there, in every spiritual or with every spiritual blessing means that through the Spirit, God's people are blessed, yes, in joy and peace and in every kind of, every, every feeling and emotion, but also that very practically relates to everyday life. And that's connected with this idea of in the heavenly places, right? Because we hear that again and we think in our kind of, you know, um, in, in our day, in 2018, we read that and we think, oh, heavenly, like out there, impractical, 
uh, disconnected from where I am actually right now. And that's not what this is saying. And, and I'm not gonna have us turn there and look ahead, but in verse 10, if you recall from last week, one verse 10 is one of like the big ideas, kind of a connecting verse for this whole chapter. And, and it's there that we learn that, that, um, that God's plan is to unite all things in him through Christ in heaven and on earth. And so what this means to be blessed in every way through the Spirit, every kind of blessing in the heavenly places means that, that is connected to the Lord's prayer, right? In Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is connected with that idea that God, as things are in the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm where you rule and reign, that's also true right here and my nitty gritty, dirt under your fingernails, everyday life, that, that God's people are blessed fully in every way, not just out there, not just one day, but that that through, because Jesus rose from the dead, that comes now crashing into our world today so that we can currently, presently, live in light of a promised future reality, okay? That the not yet meets the now in Jesus. Okay, and so we, we, we read that and then we press on. Well, how? How does this happen? This massively important phrase there, in Christ. Again, that God's people are fully blessed in Christ. And what that means is that, and this is in light of the reality, the truth. Okay, we have a cross up here. That, that reminds us, and we constantly think of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's been referred to historically as the Christ event. That, that the death of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead go hand in hand, necessarily, okay? That the, the cross without the empty tomb is actually tragedy and, and hopelessness. And yet, the empty tomb without the reality of the cross is confusing and doesn't make sense. And yet, together, it is the most shaping event in all of human history. That everything before it and everything after it comes back to that. And so, this is in Christ because he has died on the cross and risen from the dead. All who put their faith in him, all who trust in him, this phrase, this idea of all who are found in him are fully blessed. Okay, so this is this idea that he is currently, presently ruling and reigning over all things. That Jesus isn't just, he rose from the dead, kind of zapped up, and now he's there, and he doesn't, he doesn't have anything to do with our everyday lives now. But isn't that sometimes how we think about it? Like we think, okay, Jesus, had, and then we read, he is that we are blessed, and we think, well, from him, or through him, right? Okay, he died on the cross, I trust in him, and so through him I get some blessings there, but he's kind of out there and doesn't, like, doesn't really relate to right now, and perhaps we think of he's like, I don't know, Santa or something, he's got this like bag of gifts and just kind of throws them out there, and we are all like clamoring, trying to get these blessings that Jesus is kind of throwing out kind of, you know, just kind of half-heartedly or whatever, just kind of throwing out, okay, you know, like that game, I don't know if some of you guys played that game 500 growing up, or someone would like throw a ball up in the air, you know, kick it up, and everyone would like, you know, clamor for it, and whoever catches it, or if it b bounces once, you catch it, and being the shortest guy on the block always um, in my life, I learned how to like, you know, take out knees and stuff, because I was, no way I was gonna, gonna be the first one to get it, but that's how we think of it. But, but that's not what we're reading here. This phrase, in Christ, 
is massively important. It means that every blessing, everything we long for, everything we would want and hope for, everything that is, that is written into our being, into our DNA, is found in Christ. Like in John chapter 15 where Jesus, there's this great section there and where Jesus is explaining this. And he says that he is the vine and we are the branches. And he says, if, if, un, unless you abide in me and I in you, right, you will not bear fruit. Like your life will not be, essentially as you really press in, it won't be blessed. It won't, it won't reveal the reality of, of union with him. And then he says, and then he says but, but, but for those who are in me, who remain in me, who abide in me and I in him, his, his life will reflect that. His life will bear much fruit. And he goes on and says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so when we think of fully blessed, it's not just trite kind of ethereal stuff. And it's also not just Jesus kind of like, you know, like a, I don't know, like a card, he like, you know, just kind of throwing stuff out there and we're clamoring. No, he's saying, he's saying, come to me, find yourself in me. Okay, let me, let me read this really helpful quote to help, uh, help us understand the importance of this idea of being blessed in Christ. It says, in Christ is the most important phrase of this passage and for the letter as a whole. Some form of it, in him, in the beloved, or in the Christ, punctuates this passage 11 times. The key for understanding this letter Okay, understand, okay hear, hear this now, is recognizing that believers, that's people who have put their trust in him, who, have, who are found in him, have a new identity in Christ, a new self-understanding based on a new reality permeates every aspect of life and transforms individuals. So it's not just, oh, I get all this stuff. It's I am a new person, I am a new creation, and who Jesus is and his current position and his current um, inheritance, everything that he has, I now get to participate in and, and be blessed by and, and find hope in by abiding in him, by remaining in him. And so this idea is, again, a new identity and a new self-understanding based on a new reality that permeates every aspect of life. So God's people are fully blessed in Christ. And that good news, that, that's, that stuff that hopefully raises up and you just want to say, amen, I'm a new creation, a new identity, a new reality, leads us into maybe another, maybe one of these obscure rooms that we're going to go right into. Okay, so pick up with me in verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so just kind of look there for a moment. This couple of verses is loaded. There's a lot of really important theology, a lot of really important words that are used that we're not gonna shy away from. We're obviously, again, gonna understand in the bigger picture here, right, that God's people are fully blessed in Christ, chosen in love for adoption. 
But, but just to dive right into it, I don't want to overlook some of these words that are connected, right? Cho- right? Even as he chose us in him, and then the beginning of verse five there, he predestined us. Again, some words that some people want to pretend is not even in the Bible, and other people want to pretend that's all that's in the Bible and hunker down. And just to be very clear here, we as a church would, when someone asks or has, you know, we don't like wave this flag, like we're a reformed church or we, you know, but, but, but this is a time where we press in and say, yes, this is the teaching of scripture. And so we want to healthily navigate these things together and we want to lead us into a fuller worship of God and a fuller understanding of who he is and, 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 and how he's at work. So with that, let me, let me uh, read this, um, this definition. I, I, I think it'd be helpful to have an idea when we're talking about predestination or, or an, another term used for it is election, right? How do we think of it? Well, here's um, something helpful that, that I've read and how I understand it. Predestination is the teaching that God chose before the foundation of the world, you can see that's what it says there in Ephesians 1.4, who would believe and so be undeservingly saved in spite of their sin, and who would persist in rebellion and so deservingly perish because of their sin. So this idea, right, chosen, you see that idea. Well, what we just read there, right, undeservingly, be undeservingly saved in spite of their sin. So when we, when we look at that, ver- that word at the beginning of verse four, chosen, all right, there, this should lead all of us to this idea, this understanding of perhaps even asking, well, why me? Okay, because when we read something like that, we need to understand this is not God kind of walking through the supermarket looking for, you know, USDA choice meat, right? Like, what, what jumps out? What's the best? That, I choose that, right? That's how we tend to go. We just made cookies last night for the, you know, family sl- sleepover that I talked about earlier. And, right, every kid just naturally was like, what's the best cookie? cookie what you know what's the best one on the plate what can I no no they were like how do I love my neighbor as myself I'll save no that's not right they're looking for the best let's be real and we think that's what's going on here with God is God's just like ah what's the best who's the best no not that but no that's in fact if scripture teaches us anything if it speaks toward anything with regard to God's election and said he chooses like broken weak vessels because the point is we even navigate through these kind of potentially murky waters together. We need to understand that God is so committed for our good to his own glory. Okay, that God is not looking for, well, what's the best? How do I, how do I make this work out best for me? How do, I, how do I pick the best people who will make me look good? No, if anything, we see that he reveals his goodness. He reveals his wisdom. He reveals his character and his mercy and his love by calling the least of these, the broken, the undeserving, right? And that's true of all of us in this room. Some of us pretend that's not us. We, we you know, put on a fresh coat of paint or we pretend something's not there, but in all my years so far on this earth and in ministry, I've found that this, there's no one who's set apart from the rest, right? That we, we, all, we all stink, right? We all have our brokenness and we're all undeserving. 
And yet some of us don't acknowledge that. Some of us don't recognize that. And yet what happens here is as God reveals himself to us and undeservingly calls us, or the, one of the, 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 the points, right, as you walk through the, 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 the doctrines of grace is unconditional election. Is not, oh yeah, you, you deserve it. No, is God saying you don't deserve this and yet I'm going to call you to myself. And yet as we even read this stuff, as we walk through this, I wanna acknowledge there's a couple things that just well up inside of us. I, I, and that perhaps even is here this morning. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's, well, how can God be good? How can God be all powerful and all good? And, and, and kind of in our terms, how is that fair? And then on the other hand, we wonder, well, how are we responsible? Right? Well, then how can God hold any of us accountable uh, if, if he's the one doing the work of calling us to himself, if he's the one who steps in and elects us and calls us to himself? The other big idea there of irresistible grace, which in my own experience and my understanding of scripture is absolutely true, that God reveals himself, removes the veil, opens our eyes to say, wow, I, I, I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. And as we press in, we un- and there's so many more articles and quotes and things I could share. And I just wanna say, this is not the end of the conversation. Okay, let this be the beginning. If there's like confusion or you wanna know more, like press in, we, we'd love to share. I had to really kind of, chisel down a lot of what I would share here, but even that as you press in more and more and you understand that ultimately, as Jonah says, salvation belongs to our God. And unless we embrace and, and, and hold on to this mysterious reality, this theology of God doing the work that salvation truly belongs to him, then at some point along the way, we have to say, I'm better than my neighbor. I've, I've, something about me has set me apart that has led me to God, that has led me to, to reach out and bring him close. And even in some of the phrases that we use, like, I found God, or I accepted Christ, uh, and that, I, we don't like, you know, zap people, oh, don't say that, don't. but as we press in here, the, uh, and that's just nowhere in scripture is that kind of language used. As one author, Josh Butler explains, he says, no one can say, I I found God because God has never been lost. We are. And so he is a pursuing, as C.S. Lewis referred to him as, the hound of heaven. And and yet, I I want to acknowledge here that this this is difficult. It's, there's a mystery involved that I think would be foolish and unloving to pretend like is not there. I have members of my own family who who I love, who I pray for, who I have honest, sometimes intense, very real conversations with who, who, who are not followers of Jesus, who, who have not been in this kind of theological term, I would say, or, uh, right now God has not, has, not, has not called to himself. And yet, the, the truth is, no one wants to be saved that God doesn't call to himself. There's no one saying, I just wish I could. I I wish this was me, but I must not be elect. I'm here, uh, and I wish I could have a relationship with God, but he must not want me because he hasn't called me yet. That's just not how it works. 
Okay, very practically in my, in my relationships within my family, what it looks like is it looks like I understand that, that though God ordains the end and he calls to himself as we saw here before the foundation of the, of the earth, this is what he has done in his infinite wisdom and goodness and yet he also ordains the means and that is largely through, again, the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word and so that informs how I talk with my family, my neighbor. And some have said, oh, I don't believe this doctrine because it kind of leads to either spiritual hierarchy or to spiritual you know, apathy of like, well, God's in charge of it, I'll just kind of sit back, I won't share my faith, I won't be evangelistic. And, and both, I would say, should be the exact opposite. There's, that the idea of an arrogant Calvinist should be an oxymoron, shouldn't have any room, and yet sadly, historically, that's not been the case. And yet, that sh- like, again, there's no room for arrogance, there's no room for, God chose me, therefore I am, and it should be, man, God wants to reveal his goodness through the least of these, right? Uh, as we should join with the author of this letter, Paul, of saying I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners, the most undeserving. And also as we understand that God in his infinite wisdom and goodness is working through bumbling, fumbling, stuttering people to carry his good news and through that work, the spirit somehow beautifully, mysteriously removes a veil, opens people's eyes to lead them to himself and that we, in our clumsy way, get to be a part of that? Should that not compel us all the more to share our faith to every interaction we have? Say, God, would you even use me in this person's life? Would you even, even in our, in our journaling, in our praying for, for friends, for family, to say, God, I don't know how you would do it, I can't even fathom it, but would you, would you, are you leading this person to yourself? God, would you, would you remove, would you soften their heart? And I can't imagine how I could even ever see that happening, but I know you can do far more than I could ever dream and ever ask. So let me read another quote to help us navigate these tensions and questions which again on the front end I want to acknowledge doesn't just make it go away, which sometimes people pretend. They're like, oh yeah, here, I've got, a, I've got an illustration for you. I've got a metaphor. I've got a picture. Boom, they're done. And because I've actually done that, sadly. And um, I know all the while you're doing it in the back of your mind, you're like, I think, I, I think this totally clears it up. I've totally got it. And then when they're looking at you like, you know, what did you just say to me? You know, there's like, uh, I, don't, I don't fully get, you know, they're kind of looking at you still funny and then you just pretend like, Oh, it it made perfect sense. Well, instead, we need to understand there's still a mystery here. And yet, I I think this helps us understand how to handle that mystery a little bit better. This is from author and pastor Timothy Keller. He says this. So why doesn't he, being God, why doesn't God save all individuals? We can only know two things. First, the answer must have something to do with his perfect nature. He is perfectly loving and perfectly righteous, and neither can be preferred over the other, or he wouldn't be God. Somehow, the answer has to do with his being consistent with himself. Again, this leads us to an understanding of somehow we understand that God is God and I am not. 
and that God is all powerful and God is all good. God is all just and all knowing. He is fully righteous and completely merciful. And, 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 and though we want to say, well, he's more, I like this kind of, you know, like I've joked before, like, you know, Bobby, what is it? And, you know, Caladega Knights, like, I, I prefer this, this Jesus, you know, a little five pound, eight ounce, whatever, you know, chubby little baby Jesus. And that's my favorite Jesus. Some would say, oh, I like the merciful Jesus. And some would say, oh, I love the, the righteous Jesus. And, and, and throughout history, we even see kind of where whole trends and whole themes have maybe gone to one side or the other. And yet the scriptures always take us to this place of seeing, no, God is fully merciful and loving, and he's just and righteous. And we can't choose one over the other, that somehow those go hand in hand. And though it's uncomfortable, the same author here, Timothy Keller, actually refers to this uh, reformed theology or these doctrines of grace or predestination as like a hard candy. And he kind of explains it as you, as you, as you suck on it. At first, it's, it's, it's hard, and, and yet over time, it actually becomes sweet and, and is savored. And, and, and that this is this idea that, that we don't try to make it easy or palatable. And yet as we press in, especially on a personal level, it, it, it somehow reveals God's goodness and his pursuit and his character. So first, we can't choose one or the other. God is God. And he is always consistent with himself. And then he says this, second, we cannot see the whole picture. Why? If we can conceive of a more merciful system of salvation than God has, we must not see it rightly. For God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Indeed, when we finally see the whole plan and answer, we will not be able to find fault with it. Again, at the end of the day, we come to a place hopefully led to fuller, more humble worship of saying, God, there is a mystery. You have chosen to reveal yourself to us. You've chosen to show us this, but you haven't made it fully understandable. You haven't given just a quick A plus B equals C formula that we can just be like, oh yeah, full. I fully got it. I fully understand that God has revealed this aspect of his nature to us and that we can sing songs of worship as we have this morning and there can still be a place here, a tension that, 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 that we, we press into and we don't get apathetic or lazy or just be like, I don't, I don't, care. I don't go in that room. It's, it's got too clean of carpet and too nice of furniture. I just want to ignore that room and go everywhere else. No, but we, we go there and yet we acknowledge I, I'm, I'm somewhere I don't fully understand. And at some point I'm led to saying, God, you are God and I am not. And then as we press in, we say, God, you are good. And God, you are just and, and, and you know how things ought to be. And you are working all things together for your glory and for our joy. So somehow we handle this mystery by knowing these things. These, these, these seemingly paradoxical truths of God is good, God is just, God is wise. We are accountable. And God has intervened and done what we could never do in calling his people to faith in himself. And then again, so we don't just stay there, there's an, an adjacent room, right, which we'll get to here in a, in a moment. It's right next to this room of chosen and predestination, and there's an adjacent room, and like the hallway or the corridor there connecting the two is something else that we see here that pops out. 
is we're not just called and elected and predestined and there, right, we're the chosen frozen. We just sit there, okay, now what? No, we just wait until one day, and, right? That's reflected in our worship sometimes, right? I've heard that joked about like, oh, we're the chosen frozen. We, we have such a high view of God that we sit here and with our hands clasped. It's like, man, if we, we can get crazy for a basketball game or a football game or something, and yet God, we're not gonna do that for. Like, you know, I'm just saying, right? We saw a little video last week, and I know it's cold in here. If we moved a little more, we'd warm up a little bit, okay? So you guys know my agenda, and it's not so hidden. But, um, but, but anyway, connected with that is that God has a purpose in this. Look again with me here that he has chosen us, verse four, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That God has called us to, to be, that word holy, to be set apart, to be blameless. That uh, I once heard it said that God doesn't save people, that he doesn't also transform. Okay, this, and again, there's a lot of full theology there that we're just going to have to kind of go right quickly through. But, but to recognize that this idea of, oh, I said a prayer, I prayed a prayer, I come from a Christian family, I was baptized when I was an infant, I don't, but I m- m- must be good. Or I, you know, I, 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 I grew up in a Christian home, so it's not really connected to how I live now. And, and that's just, again, inconsistent with the scriptures that you see that Jesus is Savior and Lord that he is Lord over all of life and that he doesn't save people that he doesn't also call under his lordship. And, and you see that here in this idea. This is actually connected to what we'll get to and we'll end with in verse six, but is that he has done this to reveal himself, that how we live is given a purpose of God um, through how we function together, through how we live our lives would be a reflection of him and his goodness. Okay, that those whom he called, that those whom he has chosen, those whom he has predestined, it's not just in a vacuum there, but it's for a purpose of living and walking holy and blameless. And then all this is done in love, right? That, right there and kind of connecting these themes there in ver- between verses four and five, you see that he's, co- he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, and then going down further in the end of verse five, it says, in our, in our translation here, in the English Standard Version, it says, according to the purpose of his will. And yet, let me say that this is perhaps not the most helpful translation. That it's actually the, and I don't want to get into all these things, but in this translation, it's more of a word for word, and perhaps the concept in the Greek is missed, where a more accurate, as I understand it and have read, a more accurate translation is according to the pleasure of his good will. Because when we read according to the purpose, right, we think of, again, more of kind of a stuffy theology of God in a, you know, white coat and kind of a mad scientist and, oh, I've got a plan and a purpose and I'll connect these things and do this. But, but there's more of an, an emotive feeling going on here, a more of, of a reality of God's character expressed that he's calling a people to himself. He's forming a people in love according to the pleasure of his goodwill, the, the delight. So now you get to see kind of a, 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 a change in tone than what we like to think of predestination and election over here in hard, cold, stuffy theology. And yet, again, there's more of a reality that though this is difficult to handle, there's 
a loving, delightful environment that God is operating in. And that leads to this adjacent room here that he's done all of this. Why has he done this? In, in verse five, he predestined us. Why? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There's, let me just read a, a, an, another quick quote here by Matthew Smethurst. And this is a theme we've talked about a lot here before, but it says this. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. Right, so as we talk about these themes and we, right, these, these, these rooms that we want to ignore and stuff, no, it's, it's a part of a, the whole house. That, that election and predestination and God's sovereign intervening work is for the purpose of being his holy and blameless people, but not just far and distant, but co-heirs with Jesus through adoption. That this idea, there's another quote that I, I'm not gonna share with you, but I'll just tell you about, that just reveals that, that this is, that this one author, J.I. Packer says is, is perhaps like the greatest or, or one of the, the, the crown jewels of all theology is this picture of adoption. And the same is true over in the book of R Romans. You can't, you can't dive in and, and get involved with predestination and election and sanctification and glorification without this kind of unifying glue of adoption. Of, of we, we tend to talk in this world of a courtroom and you know, guilty, not guilty, and we think of God as a judge with like a powder wig and all this stuff, and, but, but if we change our picture and our understanding of perhaps the same, a courtroom, but with the purpose of an adoption ceremony, of God the Father calling, okay, that's, that's connected with that uncomfortable language of choosing and electing, but calling irresistibly, we hear his sweet voice and can do no other than to respond in faith and he's not just calling us from afar no he's moving toward us and bringing us in to be a part of his family and, and I just want to speak to us here for a mo moment that I understand there's also some discomfort in this that we talk about being the family of God, the people of God, and the reality is a lot of us have a lot of baggage from our own backgrounds. When we hear things and see things, I don't want to assume it's easy for us to talk about God the Father, that for some we hear Father and we have a completely different view of what we hear preached or sung about. And, and some of us bring our, our baggage, our family baggage into our new family and, and we have distrust and pain and frustration and even in some cases um, kind of we, we, we move away from one another because in our experiences it's been painful and, and unsafe and difficult to, to live in community. No, it's just a lot better for me to look out for myself, to look out for number one. And yet in this, again, the, the full picture here of theology that we're getting to see of right understanding of God that, leaves, that leads to right living, to right worship, is that there's an opportunity to, to, to now be reoriented, to have a, a new understanding of what it means to be a child of God, 
of, of what it means to be a part of his family, of what it means to be in relationship with brothers and sisters, right? We see even over in the pastoral epistles in First and Second Timothy and Titus that Paul, the same author here, uses this language of interacting with one another, older women as mothers, older men as fathers, or, or younger women as sisters, you know, uh, younger men as brothers, and this idea that for some of us, we're like, no, 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 that's, that's not good, but we see that in Christ, okay, this, this, God's people are, are fully blessed in Christ, chosen in love for adoption. So there's this new reality that we get to live in in terms of family. So again, I just want to point out perhaps the not so obvious historically that some of these rich and yet difficult theologies are directly connected to incredibly freeing and beautiful truths of, of, of God bringing newness and hope and healing and that it's not a coincidence that in his writing he would put these things so closely there together chosen in love before the foundations of the earth, predestined for adoption to himself as sons. And let me just point out too, because sometimes we read this and in some cases when son is, it, it, it can be understood as sons and daughters, but here um, it's absolutely clear that the author was intentional, that Paul was intentional to put sons because in this day, in the Roman world, the highest honor, the, the, the place of greatest privilege of fullest inheritance went to the firstborn son. And so this idea of who we are found to be in Christ, adopted as sons, means that all of us, and this is directly connected to, to all people, socioeconomically, ethnically, racially, gender, and this is a lot of these themes, are, I'm not inserting this into the text, Kate. this is the context of what's going on here in Ephesians, and this truth is that as God is reconciling all things to himself on heaven, in heaven and on earth, um, through Jesus, that he, there is now one people called together his diverse eclectic community who all have equal status and standing unlike the world that we live in today and like the world uh, over 2,000 years ago in Ephesus operated in with all kinds of different status and position and place that no there is now one people who all get equal status and standing and full inheritance in Christ as sons not the scraps that are left, but all the fullness, all the privilege that Christ, the firstborn son of God, gets to receive, you and I get to participate in. And that's really good news. And then again, as you can even see there, it's welling up to this whole point of a doxology. In verse six, it ends with this. There's a purpose in all of this. And the purpose is that this is all done to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That God has done all this, his choosing, electing, predestinating, transforming, adopting will and goodness is all to reveal himself and his goodness. 
And so we can't help but to respond. Again, you can't stay hunkered down over here. And at the same time, if you ignore some of these things, then it doesn't lead to this full pleasure that God has chosen to reveal himself generally in his rule and reign over all things and specifically even in his saving work of individuals that all of it would lead to this place of God's glorious grace and responding in praise to this God who has revealed himself and called us to himself. So as we close, I wanna again ask you, how do you respond to God? Perhaps you're tempted to get stuck over here in the, in the methodical and the scientific realm and yet the reality is God is calling you to himself. And there's a mystery there. And there's a beautiful reality of him simply revealing himself. The, the language is, is even used of wooing you to himself. To be a co-heir with Christ. Adopted into his family. And that this is this explosion of joy and worship as this was written, the tone, and, and even in our response, we can't help but to say, God, we respond. You are good. You are, you are powerful. You, you are mysterious, and yet you have made yourself known. And so we respond now corporately, communally together as God's people, God's set apart, chosen, called, loved, undeserving co-heirs adopted in and through trusting in Jesus. So let's respond together as God's people who are fully blessed in Christ, chosen in love for adoption, all as a picture of God's glorious grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Again, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We respond to you um, in surrender, in faith, in hope. Um, I pray and trust that you will lead us to yourself and to right worship. In Jesus' name, amen.